Well, good morning. Several years ago, I had a uh, good friend of mine call me up, want to come over and talk to me about something. So he came over to my house. And we got talking, and he told me uh, some things that uh, had been going on in his life that he had actually uh, committed a crime, actually several crimes. So we talked about it, prayed about it. He spent the night with me that night, and in the morning he called his family, told them what he was going to do. We went down to the uh, jail, the police station. He turned himself in, and he went to jail. Never got out again for, uh, well, for at least five years. And uh, his life, just from that night on, was radically changed. Now, in his case, he had done something he knew that was wrong. He uh, had the courage in Christ to face it and to uh, repent of it. Let me ask you what it would feel like to you if uh, under different circumstances, maybe you hadn't done anything wrong. Maybe it's just because you're an active uh, Christian. If you went to jail tonight for the next five years, what would happen to your life? Now think about uh, the projects you got at work. Think about uh, uh, the, the things that you're working through with your family, with your wife or husband uh, or children, parents. Think about all your friendships. Think about the things you're involved in in your ministry, all the projects this summer that you hope to get done that aren't going to get done. You're cut off from everyone. You're cut off from your family. Cut off from your friends. What would be going on? What would you be thinking? What would, what would you be saying to God? I know for myself, I'd be confused. I'd be saying, God, what's going on? What's going to happen to my family? You know, I'm financially ruined. I can't do anything, God. Why is this happening? What's happening to my reputation? I would be confused and maybe even despairing. Well, this is exactly what happened to Paul. Paul was in Jerusalem. And some people who didn't like him simply because he was an outspoken believer started a riot, got him thrown in prison. From there, he was taken to Rome, and he had been sitting in a Roman prison for two years now, chained to a, a, a Roman guard, a soldier, just waiting for trial. Now, I've told you how I might uh, respond to those circumstances, but let's take a look at how Paul responds. Philippians chapter 1, we're in the... Uh, Second week of our study through the book of Philippians. So we're going to pick up in verse 12 this morning. Philippians 1.12. This is Paul talking. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You know, Paul seems to be excited. He's trying to encourage these uh, Philippian believers, these friends of his in Philippi. They had heard that he was in prison, and that shook them. They were afraid. This is, this is the guy that came and started their, their church. This is their spiritual mother, their, their mentor, this is the great apostle, and he's sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard. It feels to them like things are out of control. 
Like God has lost control. And Paul's response is nothing of the sort. Things are working out well. This is the way it's supposed to work out. I don't think Paul was just trying to keep a stiff upper lip, trying to put the best face on a bad situation. I don't think Paul was uh, pretending that everything was wonderful, that that, that this was no problem. Paul got discouraged at times as he sat there in prison. In in 2 Corinthians, it tells us that he was was cast down. He He was feeling almost desperate. At times he was discouraged. He had many sleepless nights. He worried about the people he loved. Paul had had an opportunity to think things through and to pray things through. And this is really how he sees it. That God is in control. That it's working out well. You see in Paul's life a, a, a courage and a freedom and a joy in his life that, that's sometimes hard for us to imagine. Now, most of us have not been in prison for our faith yet. Though the possibility of that seems to be increasing all the time. But like Jackson uh, prayed for us, uh, with us, for uh, Hassan, Shah Jamali, as a brother in our body, extended body here in, in Boise, over at Capital Christian, who uh, went home and he is sitting in prison right now simply because he loves the Lord and wants to share that love with others. This could happen to our field staff at any time. We don't usually go to jail, but our lives do get out of control. They feel out of control. Things happen. You know, maybe it's a, it's a financial disaster. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a broken relationship and it just causes our whole life to go into confusion. Maybe even despair. Well, Paul understands something that we need to understand in order to experience that same kind of courage, freedom, and joy. I notice Paul doesn't say, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. I love being in prison. This is my idea of a good time. That's not where Paul's coming from. He did not enjoy it. It was hard. It was frustrating. Paul acknowledges that in other places. See, there's, it's not courage to say it doesn't matter. It's all okay. This doesn't hurt. I never have problems. There are some in Christian circles that want us to pretend that we don't have problems, that it's always okay. Well, don't buy into that. It isn't always okay. There are a lot of things that happen in our lives that are confusing and painful, and it's appropriate to recognize that and to acknowledge that and to share that with others so they can help us carry our burdens. But even having said that, Paul, in the midst of this difficult, hard, painful situation, sees something more, something more important, something that more than offsets the cost and the pain and the difficulty. He says, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. That's the basis of his excitement. Not what's happening to him, but what's happening to the gospel. Term he uses there for advance is an interesting term. Technical term that means, or that that refers to the advance of an army. It's literally the advance of an army under blows, in in stiff opposition, taking a lot of casualties. In uh, our last month, I watched several of the uh, specials on D-Day. Just watched account after account of that slow, costly, painful struggle up those beaches of Normandy. Just almost incredible courage 
bravery of those soldiers and perseverance, endurance as they fought their way up those beaches, stepping over the bodies of their friends, knowing that most of them weren't going to make it. You know, and they did it because they truly believed it was worth the cost. It was worth it for the sake of democracy and freedom. You gotta know those soldiers felt the pain of their wounds. They hurt. And they felt the almost indescribable loss of their friends, fellow soldiers. But over and above that, they felt the joy of having accomplished what they were there for. See, what those men did is a perfect picture of this term that Paul uses, an army advancing under blows. Quite frankly, that's the way the Gospel always advances, under blows, under stiff opposition, at great cost. You know, we have an enemy who is determined to stop it, who is determined to silence it. This world is occupied. It's dominated by that enemy. And God has established a beachhead and He's expanded that beachhead wonderfully. But if you get involved, if you begin to seek to share Jesus with others, it will cost you. Now, maybe not right now going to prison like, like Paul or, or like Hassan. But it'll cost you emotionally. Feeling, have I said the right thing? Feeling that distance maybe between somebody who's not, not wanting to hear it. You know, in Paul's case, they picked up rocks and threw them at him. I was talking to someone uh, just yesterday who had shared the gospel with a group of people. And she came back, she was struggling with, with just, did I do it right? They didn't respond. It hurt. It, 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 it wearied her. And she needed to realize that that is the cost. The, the army always advances under blows. There's a struggle. Well, the fact that the, that the gospel always advances that way should be no surprise. At the same time, we realize that is our call. That is our mission. That is what we are here for. Paul gives two examples of how his own imprisonment has helped advance the gospel. The first is that everyone in the palace guard has heard of why Paul is in chains. Now, now the palace guard, or, or the praetorian guard, very much like our secret service. This is a group that Augustus originally put together to protect the emperor. Like our secret service, they had other jobs as well. And, and one of the jobs of the praetorian guard was to guard the prisoners who were going to appear before the emperor. Now, again, I want you to imagine yourself in Paul's place, chained to this Roman soldier. You know, Rome was a, a pagan and, and, and corrupt government. They, they, that the majority of the people of Rome worshipped uh, pagan idols that were, were uh, horrible and vicious. The, uh, the, the, the society, the culture was reprobate. Last time I was in Cologne, Germany, went to a, uh, uh, museum there, a Roman museum. And one uh, section where all of these uh, reliefs, these ceramic uh, details, men and women and all kinds of different sexual acts with animals. Homosexuality was rife and accepted. Uh, adultery was the norm. 
Infanticide was a father's natural right, if he so chose. And here's Paul, sitting there chained to this Roman soldier who stands for all that Rome stands for, represents all that Rome stands for. Let me read a quote from James Boyce. What did Paul do in this situation? He might have complained, this is unjust. This soldier represents all that Rome stands for, and I cannot bear the sight of him. But this was never Paul's way. He himself was a soldier for Christ, and the man on the end of the chain represented a man for whom Christ died. Paul bore a witness not only to this soldier, but also to the one who replaced him on the second watch, and the one who replaced him on the third watch, and so on through the days and the years. In this way, in time, Paul reached most of the imperial guard. See, Paul never got caught up in his own uh, sense of indignation about how he had been treated, uh, how, how unfair it was to him, how he had suffered. Paul was on assignment. His assignment was to tell people about Jesus' love and to demonstrate that love to them. Paul kept his attention on that assignment. He treated these men with, with, with dignity, with, with uh, consideration. He loved them with Christ's love. The gospel was not advanced because Paul was in prison. The gospel was advanced because of the way Paul conducted himself while he was in prison. You see, whatever situation you are in, no matter how confusing and painful, no matter how mundane and unromantic it seems, this is an opportunity for you to keep your focus on your assignment, on your mission. That is, to, to, to love people with the love of Christ. To share His love in the midst of your hurt and your struggle. And as you do that, God will use that testimony powerfully for His glory. I think there's also a special application for those who are in uh, situations where they don't have the freedom to be doing all that they would like to do in, in ministry and sharing the Gospel. Now, Paul was sitting there chained to a soldier. Maybe you're chained to a desk. Right now, your job's just taking so much time and energy. There's so much pressure there. Well, your mission at this time is to love the people that walk by your desk, come up to you, and, to, and observe how you handle this kind of pressure. Maybe you're chained to your home. You, your children are small and take most of your, your time and energy. Well, your mission is to love those children, to invest in those small children, to love the people that come into your home and see how you handle those circumstances. Maybe you're uh, chained to a bed through illness. Well, your assignment is to love those doctors and nurses and family and, and others who come and see how you handle this situation. No matter what your situation, it's an opportunity for God to bear spiritual fruit. And as hard as it is to see sometimes, you're exactly where God wants you. This isn't a mistake. This isn't a disaster. You're right where He has you. You are right where you've been posted. Well, the other way that Paul recognizes that the gospel is advancing is that because of my chains, he says, most of the brethren in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the Word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You know, it's funny how this works. Almost invariably, almost without exception, when someone is called to dramatically and obviously suffer for their faith, 
The effect on the believers around is not to make them more afraid. It takes their fear away. In the early 50s, there were four missionaries, including uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, went down to share the gospel with the Alca Indians of Ecuador. All four of them were killed by the Indians. Should have been the end of that. You know, who else wants to go down there and die? But the response to that event was a flood of missionary volunteers. That single event spurred an entire generation of volunteers for missions. A year ago, last January, in a, in a certain province in China, a, a meeting of Chinese Christian leaders was raided. They were arrested. They were taken to prison and tortured. That should have been the end of that. Uh, the, the churches that they administered to should have scattered. People should have hidden. People should have been afraid. That could happen to them. But that's not what happened. Instead of being afraid, those believers were no longer afraid of prison, no longer afraid of torture, and they begin to speak the gospel more boldly, and the gospel spread like wildfire. At one point in that one province in China, people were becoming believers at a rate of 16,000 a day. It's funny how the, the, the enemy tries to stomp on the church and put it out. What happens instead is sparks shoot out in every direction, and flame begins to, to, to burn in every direction. And I don't get the wrong idea here. This was stuff is no fun. Uh, those Chinese pastors, when they were tortured, it hurt. And they screamed in pain. And their wives and their children wept, cried for their, their husbands and father out of fear for them. It's no fun at all. But there was something bigger going on. Something that overshadowed the pain. That was... The gospel was going out. And as a result, these men and women experienced a courage and a freedom and a joy. Now, having uh, expressed his excitement over the fact that uh, that, uh, uh, people were being more bold to share their faith, Paul knows what to expect from these Philippian Christians. He knows what their objection to all this is going to be. They're sitting there thinking, Paul, you're in prison. You don't really know what's going on here. Now, sure, some people are are, are out sharing the gospel out of good motive because they love you and want to continue the work. But there's a lot of people out there that are trying to start their own group and get everybody to come to their group or their church. A lot of people are doing it just trying to get back at you, Paul, trying to make it look like we don't need Paul. They're they're, they're tearing things apart here, Paul. Maybe some of these were people who Paul would not allow into prominent positions because they were self-promoting and and, and wanted all the prestige. They'd seen how people respected and loved Paul. and They wanted to be treated that way. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people get into ministry for that reason. But it's a deadly reason. It doesn't work. The only real motivation for ministry is a desire to love our Lord and to serve His people. But anyway, these people are saying, Paul, you're sitting there in prison. You don't really see what's going on. Well, listen to Paul's response, starting in verse 15. He says, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, 
You know, I understand all of that stuff. I understand those things that you're concerned about, but what matters is Christ is preaching. As a result of that, I am excited. I am happy. Now, there are several principles we've got to, to understand here. We've got to get a grip on. First of all, realize Paul is not endorsing heresy. In Galatians 1, he says, If anyone, even an angel, comes and brings to you a different gospel, may he be eternally damned. Paul does not tolerate heresy. You see, what Paul's referring to here is other believers who are speaking the true gospel. And Paul says what's important there is not what group people get involved on, not what church they go to. It's that they're coming to Jesus Christ. That's what's mad, what matters. That's what is important. That's what I get excited about. Several years ago, a couple of young men knocked on my door, asked if I wanted to join a Bible study. These guys were from a, a Christian church. And I said, uh, Hey, great. You're starting a Bible study. That's neat. But I'm already in one next door. They said, oh, uh, are you a Christian? I said, yeah. I said, you go to church? I said, yeah, I go to Cole Community Church. They said, well, if we could show you that your church is teaching error, would you be interested? I said, I sure would. <laughs> but then I said, but what I really want to ask you is why you think it honors your Lord to tear His bride apart? Don't do it. That's wrong. Didn't even slow them down. They immediately launched in to what uh, their theological differences were with us. And, and, I, and I basically had to forcefully stop the conversation because I did not want to argue with them. And as they left, I said, you know, may God use you to bring people to Himself. More recently, I had somebody sit down and, from, a, from another church and tell me what, uh, what problems they and their church had with us and our church. That hurt. It was hard. But what bothered me even more is I had somebody from here in our church come and tell me about all these problems that this other church was having. And I stopped them. I said, wait a minute, don't believe everything you hear. And don't go spreading it around. That's wrong. People have nothing to do with this. Sometimes, you know, it's tempting. We want to defend our church. We want to feel better about ourselves by finding fault in other churches. But don't do it. Remember, this is our Lord's fiance, His betrothed that we're criticizing. And it's wrong. Don't do it. And if you hear somebody wanting to, to tear down the Catholic church or the, the Baptist church or any other church, take offense. Stop them. And if you hear of problems going on in other churches, pray for them. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would heal them. Pray that God would prosper them and the Gospel would go out from that church. It always saddens me when people leave this church, leave Cole. No matter what the reason, it saddens me. Even when people move to another town, I'm saddened because they're no longer immediate part of us. But they are still part of us in the larger body of Christ. And I want to see this church grow. And when somebody leaves because they're unhappy with what's happening here, it breaks my heart. And I want to learn what we can do better, how we can better love each other, be more effective in ministry here. Use those times to think that stuff through. Again, I want this church to grow and be filled with people who are loving each other, who are reaching out. And it delights me to see new people coming here. 
As most of you know, there have been several families who've left over the last year or so. Uh, Quite a few families have gone over to help Brian Fisher start a new church uh, uh, down at BSU. It's another group uh, leaving to start another church right now. I want you to know that we are not in competition with Brian's church or other churches. It is our delight to see them prosper and grow and to, to, to proclaim the Gospel, to see God use them for His glory, to bring people to Jesus Christ. As Paul says, the important thing is that in every way Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. You know, what a freedom we have. A freedom to, to enjoy our brothers and sisters and encourage them and delight in what God is doing among them and how God is glorifying Himself in their lives. We don't have to get hung up on, on whether they do things like we do or they have the same emphasis as us or, or whether we agree on everything. We have the freedom to enjoy them and to rejoice. The next Paul moves on to uh, his own future. At the end of verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Let me draw your attention just to a couple of things in this section. First of all, what's Paul's big concern here? Well, he wants to be delivered. Delivered from what? It's not prison. He doesn't know whether he's going to get out of prison. What he wants to be delivered from is his tendency to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. From, from lacking sufficient courage to glorify Christ in his body. That's what Paul is concerned about. Now you may have been sitting here thinking that you're the only one a little bit uncomfortable with all of this talk about sharing the gospel. You look around, you probably figure everybody sitting around you shares the gospel explicitly at least once a day, twice on Sunday. That there is this uh, mysterious spiritual gene that everyone has that makes sharing the gospel come naturally and somehow you didn't get that gene. You're the only one that this stuff scares. And don't you believe it? That's the way it affects everyone. Now, some people have have, um, a special gift and ability in sharing the gospel, but it still scares them. Look at Paul. This is the Apostle Paul. This is Mr. Bold himself. And what he is concerned about is that he not chicken out. That he have sufficient courage, that he not be ashamed of his Lord Jesus Christ, that he not give in to his tendency to, to compromise and act like he's ashamed of Jesus. Now he's confident that he won't. Why? Because he's so brave? No. Because he's so gifted? No. He's got two reasons for his confidence, he says. One is that people are praying for him. And two, that the Holy Spirit is helping him. You see, no one is naturally adept at sharing. And we have an enemy who is committed to discouraging us and distracting us 
As Paul says in Romans, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And the enemy wants to quiet that and he does it by making us afraid, by making us feel badly after we've shared, by making us confused, by distracting us with other things. He is committed to stopping us. This is a spiritual struggle, a spiritual battle, and as a result, we need the prayer of others. Paul asked for prayer in six of his letters. Colossians 4, he says, Pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I may proclaim the message clearly as I should. In Ephesians 6, verses 19 and 20, Pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul needed prayer to be fearless because Paul was afraid. It scared him. He needed prayers to not be afraid. Again, it's something we cannot do effectively on our own in our own power. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to partner with Him in doing this. He's the one that has to give us the opportunity. He's the one that has to give us the freedom. He's the one that has to give us the words, like Paul said. He's the one that that has to give us that kind of powerful love for the people that we're sharing with. He's the one that's got to open their ears and their eyes and their hearts if that sharing is going to be effective. See, we cannot do it on our own. Let me encourage you to begin to ask for prayer like Paul does. To begin to pray for yourself and each other that God, by His Holy Spirit, would open our mouths, that He would give us boldness, freedom, courage. The other thing I wanted to note in this section is Paul's strong conviction of God's absolute wisdom and control. Paul is so convinced that God's will for him is good and it's right that Paul is excited. He can't wait to find out what it is, even if it's death. See, Paul belonged to Jesus Christ. As a slave of Christ, that simplified his whole life. and It freed him from fear. If we could only grasp this concept, what... Clarity we would find. What freedom we would discover. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has broken the power of the devil who through the fear of death has enslaved mankind. You see, our enemy has used the fear of death, the fear of not making it to dominate us, to control us. We grow up with these fears and they take all kinds of forms. Uh, there's there's the, the, the fear of not making it financially. There's the fear of not making it relationally. There's the fear of illness, the fear of death, the fear of, of, of not being remembered or significant. And the enemy uses these fears to focus us on the wrong things. He uses these fears to, to focus us on, on the health of our body. We worry about all our exercise and nutrition and can become totally preoccupied with our bodies. He uses it to focus us on, on business success so that we can be making it financially, so that we can leave our mark on this world. Sometimes He uses these fears to cause us to run away from these fears and try to just get lost in the crowd or to escape these fears through sensual pleasures. But you see, Jesus Christ has broken these fears 
by His perfect love. John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. That's why we see such freedom in Paul. That's why Paul says in verse 21 in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He lives to serve Christ. He's presented his body to Christ, a living sacrifice. For him to live is to serve Christ. That's his purpose. That's what life is all about. His purpose is to enjoy an intimate relationship with Christ. And to share Christ's love with others. Build up the body of Christ. Share Christ with the unsaved. As John Stott put it, Christ is the center. Everything else is circumference. Because Paul has this this very simple, uh, clear, right view of life. Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If for you to live is money, then to die is to lose it all. If for you to live is family, then to die is to lose it all. If for you to live is fame, to die is to lose it all. If for you to live is, is toys and recreation, to die is to lose it all. I saw an appropriate bumper sticker the other day. It said, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. <laughs> See, the only one who can say, For me to die is gain. The only one who can be truly fearless is the one who says, For me to live is Christ. Nothing can take Christ away from us. This is the key to Paul's courage and his freedom and his joy. He lives for Christ. And that reinterprets everything, every circumstance of his life. You know, how can Paul rejoice in prison? Well, because prison can't take Christ away from him and he can still serve Christ in prison. He can still uh, glorify Christ in his body by the way he acts, by the way he speaks, by the way he loves. Paul lives for Christ and that changes everything. And if you are a Christian, that is your privilege. That is your calling. That is your identity. And nothing can take Christ away from you. Divorce cannot take Christ away from you. And you can live for Christ. You can glorify Christ in your body in the midst of an unwanted divorce. Financial disasters cannot take Christ away from you. And you can glorify Christ in your body in the midst of financial struggle. Illness cannot take Christ away from you. And you can glorify Him in your body in the midst of serious illness. See, this is the key to life and to courage and to freedom and to joy. This isn't just the key to facing death. This is the key to facing life. I want you to listen to Paul's calm as he considers what might happen in his life, starting with verse 22. He says, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain. 
And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through, through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. Now when Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, that's not a, a morbid death wish. You know, sometimes our lives get so hard, painful, confusing. Death looks like a welcome relief from the pain and the struggle. We want to die to escape life. That's not where Paul was coming from. Paul didn't view death as just uh, superior to the worst of life. He saw death as a gain over the best of life, over the joy and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that he found in life. Because for him, death meant to experience Christ in, in, in a more full, a more direct way. Death was the, the ultimate promotion, and he looked forward to it for that reason. And as he sat there and calmly, comfortably contemplated, that was one of the possibilities, came to the conclusion that his Lord and Master would decide what's best for everyone involved. There was no fear. Quite a few years ago, when I was a student at Peninsula Bible Church, one of my teachers, a man named Jack Crabtree, had a three-year-old son named John David. Jack's wife, Jody, was uh, pregnant with their daughter, Casey. And one night in the uh, ninth month of Jody's pregnancy, John David choked on an apricot pit. They couldn't dislodge it. They called the paramedics. They rushed him to the hospital. That night, Casey, their daughter, was born. That same night, John David, their son, died. Now, I've uh, been a pastor for quite a few years, and there's nothing more traumatic, more confusing, more painful than the death of a child. But two days later, Jack got up at John David's uh, memorial service, he said to the congregation there, he said, I cannot express how much it hurts to lose John David, but I don't grieve for John David. He is now with Jesus. He now knows all we long to understand. He now experiences all we long for. If you are crying, you're not crying for John David. You're crying for us. I miss John David. I long to be with him and to do all the things I planned to do with him. I had so many things I wanted to teach him and to see him learn. But don't weep for me. John David was not my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Lord. And nothing can take him away from me. That's what we're talking about here. That's the kind of courage... That's the kind of freedom. That's the kind of joy in the midst of gut-wrenching pain and loss. We're not saying that, that life goes well. It doesn't. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of confusion. But when Jesus Christ is our Lord, there's a, a courage and a freedom and a joy that we just can't explain. Well, Paul finishes our section, verse 27, the first line in there, by saying, Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can only do that if for you to live is Christ.
I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. E. Stanley Jones describes Paul's attitude, describes the way we can look at life when he said, The early Christians did not say in dismay, Look what the world has come to. But instead they said with delight, Look what has come in to the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You have indeed come into the world. We acknowledge that and we embrace that. We acknowledge that You've come into our lives and we want to live for You. We want to serve You. We confess how fearful we are at times of of speaking out in honor of You. How ashamed we act of You. We ask You, Lord, to free us from that. To give us the clarity, the focus that You gave Paul of living for You. Having You as the focus of our lives. Lord, I ask that You accomplish that. I ask that You stir us up to pray for one another. To ask for prayer for ourselves. That You might glorify Yourself in our bodies. Lord, we uh, want to be able to say with freedom, with clear understanding, for us to live is Christ, to die is gain. Lord, accomplish this in our hearts. Accomplish this in this church. Amen.